Last week, if you were with us, during our table talk, uh, which was based upon this particular verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what we tried to point out, what I, I, there was a word I kept repeating, is the immensity of that truth. The idea that God made Christ to be sin was, was an idea, a plan, a decree that was in his mind before the world was even formed. And we tried to kind of get our arms around that a little bit, how, how magnificently huge what we're talking about is when we're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the things we, one way we put it was, you know what, when we were, when we were sharing in the Lord's table, and, and we put it this way, we said, you know, we are touching eternity with this. We are engaged in something that goes from eternity past and will carry on in its effects to eternity in the future. There's nothing, I think we said there's nothing like it, and that everything else we would be involved with in the coming week or month or year is small potatoes compared to us touching eternity through the gospel of Jesus Christ and that he was, he was made sin for us. So the word we kept throwing out was immensity. This is, we can't get our arms around it. We can't get our minds around it. So today, seeing that was kind of hard to grasp, we're moving to the other side and we're going to be keeping it simple. And the word that I would like us to consider is in, 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 in juxtaposition to immensity is simplicity. Because what we're going to communicate today is very, very simple in its statement. Now, you may struggle with it in, its under, in your understanding, but it's simple and easy to understand. Want well, to begin by picking it up in Rome, or Galatians chapter 1, that's the book we're in this week, chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 9, and understand that Paul is making a simple point, a clear point, because of confusion that was being introduced into the mix there in Galatia. Now, when we think about the book to the Galatians, it's kind of unique in that it's written to the churches in Galatia. And there's all sorts of study that can be done around this. But let's see if we can keep it succinct. There's two ways in which this word is used. There is the political way in which Rome, in its conquering of different peoples, had defined this area as Galatia, politically. In the north half of this, there were the ethnic Galatians, people who had come from France some three-plus centuries earlier and settled there. And they were the, they were the Galatian people. But politically, the, the, the picture is scribed larger than that. And there are places down at the south end of the political realm where Paul actually did some missionary work. And so it's kind of understood that he probably is speaking to these churches, although he doesn't name any of them by city or by name, and there's nowhere other way to identify it other than he's speaking to the churches in Galatia. Now, here's what's happening there. 
There's a mixture coming in. There's some confusion being brought in. And he very quickly is trying to get a handle on it and say, that is not what you were taught and do not fall for it. And so he's trying to make sure that that they come back to a proper understanding of this thing called the gospel that we talked about last week of being so immense. In all of its immensity, he's like, let's also understand it in its simplicity. So, Galatians chapter 1, I want to pick up in verse 6. We're just still setting this up. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. He said, you're, you're listening, you, you've given ear to a different gospel, to some other means whereby the idea of being established righteous before God is being proclaimed. That is a different gospel. And then he says, which is not another. That's not a gospel. That's not the gospel. That is not the truth that you received from us. It's something else. And there are people who are troubling you and they are actually perverting, twisting that which is the real gospel of Jesus Christ. That which he proclaimed to them when he was there. And he says, you're just following right after it. And I'm just amazed that you've, you've allowed this transition in your thinking to happen so quickly. And so he's writing to correct that. And notice what he says in verse 8 then. As they're potentially buying into this perversion of the gospel, he says, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats himself, As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. He is dead serious about this fact that they're, they're being twisted on their understanding of what is this reality of this good news. And he said it is so serious that even if we bring a message different than what you were all have already received from us, if we come back, we bring you a different message, may we be accursed. Because that is the only message that God has revealed. There is no other revelation of some other gospel. And so, just to fill in our notes so we can keep moving forward, I'd like to make this observation based upon verses 6 to 9 of chapter 1. Some people think there is another way to God. Some people think that. There is another way to God. It ain't true. So that's the simple thing we want to put in front of us. There is one, one gospel of truth in Jesus Christ that has been revealed. And Paul will describe for us, will get a sense as to what that perversion was as we continued on. Now, as he moves through his, this letter to the Galatians, in chap, beginning in chapter 1, verse 11, he starts describing how he came to his understanding of the gospel. He didn't receive it from men, he says. 
In fact, God confronted him directly, and God revealed to him directly, pulled him aside for a few years to make clear what the gospel was in Jesus Christ, what this message of good news is, what the significance of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is. And it was a directly received revelation from God. Then, in verse 18, he goes on to describe how there was a point in the past where he had stopped in and went and saw Peter in Jerusalem to confirm with Peter about Peter's understanding of the gospel. Peter had nothing to add to him. And they had agreed as to, yes, this is what God is doing. This is this redemptive work. This is how we understand it. So then he went off from there and ministering in a couple of cities of Syria and Cilicia. He tells us that in chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, that he went on from there and continuing to do his missionary work, continuing to encourage people in this clearly revealed truth of what is how the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are to be understood. Then there was at that time in the early church, there were some questions because Paul is out there and he's having a ministry and some others, I'm sure, were also among Gentiles. Now you got this question that comes into play. Because when the church was first formed, it was formed within the Jewish nation, right? Christ was a Jew. And that's where it first began. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the capital, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, as it moves out to the uttermost parts of the earth, now something begins to happen. There are people who are not of Jewish heritage and extract, were not raised with all the Jewish laws, had not followed the Jewish laws. In particular, the men had not been circumcised according to the Jewish laws. They're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Then church has to figure out, well, what do we do with them? And here's the real question. The question is, do they need to be circumcised according to the law, as we all were, because that's just the way we were raised, in order to now be part of this new thing called the church, the body of Christ, this new, this new redemptive time period that we are in. And you can read in, in Acts chapter 15, it's referred to as the Jerusalem Council, they said, nope. That's not how we would, we believe that, that God is instructing us on this thing called the gospel. Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to become Christians. He can go from being a Gentile to being a Christian. <laughs> Directly. You don't have to follow the law. So, Paul was there. He had understood what had taken place during the council. And then, he went back to Antioch, which was his home base. While in Antioch, he describes a time when Peter comes. Now, here's the point, I believe, in why he describes the time with Peter. When Peter comes and spends time in Antioch, Peter began to slip in his clear understanding of the gospel and how we live it and and, and how we express it and how we stand for it. And what I, what I understand him to be saying is, look, here's what I told Peter when he came to Antioch a number of years ago. He came, I had to correct him, and you'll see that. I had to correct him. And if I had to correct Peter, and I did, I need to correct you also. So let's get clear on this. So he tells them what he said to Peter. And that's where we're picking it up. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 
And we'll follow it right to the end of the chapter. This is Paul's explanation. When Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. See, there's that Gentile question. But when they came, these men from James, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now, you see what's happening there? He's describing an event that had happened with Peter. Peter came visiting with him, and as long as these others from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's like the mothership in the beginning of the church, as long as these from Jerusalem aren't there, he can hang out with the Gentiles, do according to the gospel what he understands with great freedom. But then these others came, and he got a little on edge, and he began to separate himself from the, the Gentiles in order to not stir up or make angry. It says here he was afraid of those who were of the Jewish background. That's the circumcision that he references. So now he's acting differently. Got that? He was acting this way when there was nobody from Jerusalem. People from Jerusalem comes along. He now acts a different way. And his behavior was affecting those around him, so much so that even Barnabas, who was one of his, uh, his cohorts in missionary work, even Barnabas was caught up in this confusion as to what was happening. So verse 14, When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Is that an interesting statement? They were not Straight forward. Things were getting confusing. They were not living out what had been agreed upon between he and Peter, what had been agreed upon at Jerusalem Council. Now when it looked like there could, ah, it might create some tensions, he began to separate himself from the Gentiles. That was not a straightforward understanding of how we live out the gospel because Jew and Gentile alike are one in Christ. And Ephesians tells us how he tore down that middle wall. He took that law, that enmity that was between them, took it out of the way. And he said, now Peter's getting caught back up in that. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. And effectively what he's saying, he's asking this question. He's saying, wait a second, we have agreed, we've come to this place. We understand now that the law had a purpose But the purpose of the law has been righteously fulfilled in Jesus Christ and we are no longer under that law. And we were living that way and we were agreeing that we are not under that law. Now you're giving indication that the Gentiles who were never under that law in the first place, well, maybe they ought to start taking that into play. And they start layering back into this thing that they were separated from, the law, because the law had been fulfilled righteously in Jesus Christ. Now they're separated from it, and they're starting to allow its influence to be layered in, it's the best term I can come with, to their understanding of the good news in Jesus Christ. And he said, why are you doing that? You'd separated yourself from the law. 
You were living with the freedom of the Gentiles that the law is now part of their life. Now you're asking them to be under the burden of that. What are you doing? This way, say, you are not being straightforward. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ, therefore, a minister of sin? Is Christ the one leading in this way? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed... If I go back into the world of the law, I make myself a transgressor. I'm the one who went back in that old thing. It's not what Christ has revealed, and it's not how Christ is leading us in a clear understanding of the gospel. He says, For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And friends, that goes right back to what we had looked at last week. He made him to be no sin, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is, this, there is this thing that takes place when we, when we touch eternity by receiving the gospel by faith, by receiving what Jesus Christ has done for us, where we are identified in his death, burial, and resurrection. And in that, he has fulfilled all of the righteous requirements of the law so that we don't have to be under that law anymore. And now, the life that we are living is a life of him in us And we're living a new life from a new center, and it's not about following this law. It's about being led by the Spirit of God as Christ has now given us new life, and we are in Him. And then he makes this magnificent statement, and this is where it gets real simple. And that's why this is our statement for today, and this is our memory verse. I do not set aside... The grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. See, he sets up this contrast. There's one of two ways that we're made righteous before God. We're either made righteous through our own efforts by seeking to fulfill the law or we're made righteous through what Christ has done on our behalf and we get identified into that by faith through the gift of grace that is in this thing, this message, this redemptive work that God is doing. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. I believe the old King James said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. It's an interesting word, but because it has a negative built into it, I find it a little bit hard to describe. The word literally means, the root word is to place or to put. It has something in front of it which says, no, not place, not put. But then he says, I do not, not place, not put. Okay, but here's what, here's, as I'm thinking about it, it's like this. You've got this thing called the grace of God, which is at the heart of this gospel, of the good news in Jesus Christ. He says, I don't take that message of grace and not put it somewhere, not give it a place. See, to me, it's just like dismissing it. Oh, as soon as we bring the law back in, we've dismissed the grace of God. It doesn't matter because I'm going to follow the law. I'm going to do it with my own righteousness. He said, I don't set it aside, is what the translators give us here. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, 
If I can fulfill that old Mosaic law, and I can be righteous before God in that way, then Christ died in vain. Christ died without purpose. It was meaningless. It was directionless. That's what has taken place if I bring in this other gospel, this perversion. And the best picture I have in my understanding of that, and I don't know if it works for you, but, but I'm picturing in, during the course of time, God had this magnificent thing before the world was formed in his mind of redeeming man to himself, which at the very heart of it, was his son dying on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, which we enter into by faith. It's a gift of grace because we'll never live up to his standard. Okay, so that was the very heart of it. And now the world is created, man falls, and he begins to reveal his redemptive work to man. And the law is necessary and effective to reveal God's righteous standard. And that a holy, righteous God truly is offended by our sin. But it also reveals to us that we are not effective at being able to solve the problem. So within this entire plan, this immense thing that he has is his son, the second person of the Trinity, steps out of eternity, step, takes on flesh, bears our sin. He becomes sin for us who knew no sin. And it is in that, by faith in that alone, that we can, that we can have new life. But if we then, because now the righteous fulfilled the righteousness requirements of the law have been fulfilled, but if then we say, well, that's really nice. Now let's take these things and bring them back in. What I picture is the root, the the firm implantation of the of the reality of what Jesus Christ has done. As being our sin bearer, I picture somebody just taking a spade, working around the root and popping it out and just kind of, and it just floats away because that doesn't matter anymore if I brought the law back in. If I can be righteous on my own, didn't need Christ. If that's a possibility, that was kind of in vain that he went through all of that. This whole, this whole immense gospel that God declared really doesn't have a point, does it? Because I can be righteous on my own. But we can't. <laughs> See, some people believe there's another, another way to God, right? <laughs> it ain't true. There's one. There's only one that's effective. See, friends, here's, if, 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 if you're getting that simplicity, right? Here's the simplicity. Either Christ died for us and he's effective, or we can do it on our own. If we can do it on our own, we don't need Christ. What we need to always remember is the scripture is clear. We can't do it on our own. So we have to have Christ. But by bringing in this other thing, it's like dismissing what Christ does. Well, well, we'll do it ourselves. Thank you. We'll just kind of dislodge that gospel and just kind of toss it away. There's no place for it. Let it float away. I don't care because I'll do it myself. So if we understand it's either Christ or the law. And the law is ineffective, so we have to have Christ. And that's where, that's where the gospel is. If I've said that enough and you think you're getting it, let's move on. A couple of thoughts about that. First, we don't. This is just human condition. We don't want to give up our preconceptions. See, they, the Jews who are doing this, they were raised in this law. This is a heritage that they've held on to for 14 centuries of this law. 
And it doesn't readily come for us to just dismiss our preconceptions. And if we could throw into this mix, because he's talking very specifically about Judaizers coming in. But I believe it was Rabbi Zacharias who basically pointed out all religious thought that comes from the mind of man is based on law. It's based on us, mankind, establishing his own righteousness before God. The misconception in that, of course, is that man could ever establish righteousness before God. But when you look at things like the Hindu religion, which is the major religion of where Ravi comes from in India, there's this thing called karma. And if you didn't get it right this time, man, your conditions may, or last time, your conditions may be really tough this time, that hopefully you'll get it right next, this time, so the next time you can do better. But it's all about you. It's all about your sin. It's all about how terrible uh, you have been. And that's why you're in this awful circumstance. Do you recall Trent telling us when he was in Nepal that, uh, yeah, they're encouraged not to help people who are in those bad ways. They were encouraged not to help them because they're there for a reason in that poverty-stricken place. And they've got to somehow work out the problem of that sin issue that put them there. That's law. You know, you got to do it right. And, and my understanding within, a, within a, uh, Islam, there is at least to a degree that, guess what? If you're going to ever get to see Allah, your good works got outweigh your back. Okay, we got that kind of thing going down. And I think that's where most of us tend to fall. Most of us tend to fall in this, well, I'm, you know, I try to be a good guy. And uh, sometimes we've brought that right into, uh, right, into, right into Christendom. Because I was told, when I asked the question as a young boy... Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? I was told, so if you're good enough, you can get into heaven. Put the law right on my shoulders to say, be good enough, and you can one day be in heaven. Because religious thought that that comes from the natural man of God always goes to law. It always goes to this thing of, you got to get it right. It's not a, there's nothing out there that is grace-oriented. That's number one. So we don't want to give up our preconceptions. They didn't want to give up this Mosaic law. Secondly, we don't want to give up our logic. Because we're trying to think this through from our human logic. And one of the things, you know, we've concluded is the point of religion is to make man behave properly. Going to give him all these threats and all these things and tell him this is what you've got to do so that one day you can get to heaven or else God's going to you know, be thumbs down on you, you know, and that's, you know, phrases like you do the crime, you pay the time. We bring that into a religious understanding. But Scripture speaks to the point of those laws. Law was a schoolmaster to bring us under Christ. It was instructive. It had a place, but it's been fulfilled. That place was to help us understand our need when Christ came. But here's what we can't do logically. Here's what does not compute for us. The worst sinner who repents will be saved, while the best sinner who is unrepentant will not. And that doesn't rest well with our logic. And we kind of go, really? Does that seem fair? But friends, it is not a question of our logic. It is a provision of grace. And that's what Paul is saying. I do not set aside the grace of God. If it's going to come to the logic of the good people get in and the bad people don't, 
if we're going to run a bell curve and say, hey, all of you on this half of the bell curve, you're out of here, okay? And on this half, you're in. Woo! Whatever. We will never arrive at an understanding. Third thing where we struggle with it is we don't want to give up our, preconce- our preconceptions, presuppositions, faulty logic. And then that causes us to take offense at such a narrow possibility for righteousness and acceptance to heaven. It is very narrow. It is in Jesus Christ what he has done, nothing else. It's a magnificent gift of grace given to us. But it's grace founded upon the cross, his fulfilling the righteous judgments and requirements of the law. And that's the only place where that righteousness can be revealed and can be imputed to us. Nowhere else. And people don't like that. So then we ask questions of, who do you think you are to proclaim such a gospel? Who do you think you are? I'm as good as you are. Which is the wrong thing. You're not as good as I am. You're as dead as I am. And that's both of our problems. Somebody has said, and I think they're correct, the gospel isn't about making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive. And without this work of Jesus Christ, we are never made alive again. Problem of sin and death weigh upon us. They're here, they're real. He is the only solution. The grace that is in Him, nothing else. And Paul is adamant about this. I marvel that you're so soon moved from this truth that was shared with you and you're bringing the law back in. Don't do it. It's simple, it's clear. Have we got that, friends? I'm not trying to be offensive in any way. I'm trying to be clear, as Paul is clear. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. We either have a hope in Jesus Christ or a hope in something else, but we don't have both. And the hope in anything else will fail. So we really only have hope in Jesus Christ. So, isn't that magnificent? Think. Now, let's tie together last week with this week and let's just give ourselves a final thought. Last week, we considered these truths and we looked at them from a perspective of immensity. How huge this truth is. We touch eternity when we interact with it. And today we're... Speaking from a perspective of simplicity. If I can't get my arms around the immensity of this thing, the one thing I can get my arms around, there's one truth. Hope is found in Jesus Christ alone and nothing else. Nothing else. And it's grace that has made it so. All right? That's simple. I don't have to sit through and think 75 other possibilities. No. It's Christ and Christ alone and anything else is a law system that will not hold up. We get that. And Paul is proclaiming that. And he's calling them back to that. So, in light of that magnificent reality of immensity and simplicity, how about this? 
Miles introduced a big song for us that they're going to bring back on Easter Sunday. I'm only kidding, Karen, okay? I don't know if you're bringing it back or not, all right? But it was a great song to kick off the Easter season, okay? So how about this? That we invite someone for Easter Sunday. Is that that tricky? Why don't we invite someone to be with us on Easter Sunday? Let me tell you the kind of people I think it'd be really fun for us to invite. Unbelievers, they're around us. Backsliders, they're around us. Atheists, bring them in. Those who are highly intelligent. I think God can handle high levels of intelligence in man and answer their questions. Let's also bring those who are of slower intellect. Right? Paul said, not many mighty, not many wise are called. God has love for people of all ranges on the intellect scale because they're made in his image. How about bringing in the hurting? Maybe God will speak to them and they'll hear some hope that they don't have. Bring in the happy. We could use their smiles and help us sing loudly on Easter Sunday. You know, there are some out there who've forgotten to even think about Easter yet. And maybe your invitation will remind them. Maybe they will come. Some who will be looking to go to church, but now they haven't been to church in quite a while. They don't know where to go. Where would I be welcome? Where could I go and not stick out? You know, the old, if I walk in, the roof will cave in. No, a place where they would be welcomed. And you can give a welcoming invitation to them. How about some who are just needing a bit of a nudge? Not a nudge. Don't be a nudge in how you approach them. But people might need a nudge that says, hey, you want to come with? We would love to have you join us on Easter Sunday. Come join us. 10 o'clock service. Donut starting at 9. It's going to be good. Where do you find these people? You find them among your neighbors, your friends, your family, your coworkers, and strangers. You're going to bump into a whole lot of strangers in the next few weeks. And it doesn't take a lot of effort to just say, hey, you know what? Love to have you join us, 10 o'clock, New Fulton Evangelical Free Church on Easter Sunday. We're going to have a great time together. And if you have no place to go that day, join us. Donuts at 9. Love to have you. Why? Okay, why will we do this? Why am I asking you this? Because they will be exposed to the immensity and the simplicity of God's redemptive work. There is nothing else like it. That's why we're going to do this. And I'm going to finish with one last exhortation. When these people come in, and I trust we will have some with us, and if you weren't able to find anybody, don't not come yourself. I don't have someone with me. Please, be here. Okay? But whoever is here, whoever enters in our doors, Can we please love them? Can we please recognize they took a risk to be with us? Can we please recognize that God may want to use this moment when they're here to touch them for eternity and if we dismiss them, if we treat them rudely, if we treat them like they don't matter, if they're sitting right next to us and we don't even greet them and seek to learn a name, welcome them. Man, we missed a 
incredible opportunity. I had somebody one time with great pride and sadness to me. I had somebody one time, many years ago, said to me about this church like this. We're the church that doesn't dance. And my response was, I'm unimpressed. When we become known as the church that loves, then I will be delighted. Have we reached that place yet, friends? Are we the church that's going to love whoever walks in our doors, regardless of history, regardless of reputation, regardless of how they smell, regardless of how they look, regardless of anything? Are they going to walk in here and find that there were people here who loved them with the love of Jesus Christ in an immense and a simple message? I pray so. Father, thank you for the joy of being here today. Thank you for the magnificence of what we have in Christ. May we live it out and reach it out in his name. Amen.